the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Joshua. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. What does it mean when the Bible says that the Lord hardened their hearts? It sounds very fatalistic. It sounds like, well, God is just forcing this by his own hand. When God hardens one's heart, it simply means this, that he's giving to them what their sinful heart desires. You see, God is patient with us, but to a point, when we continue to refuse to yield to God, to surrender to God, then he will, in effect, give us what we want. Did you know that when you get what you want, you're oftentimes telling God that you don't want what He has for you? It's a slippery slope to chase your desires. In the beginning, your thoughts are pure and aligned with God's will. But slowly over time, they start to become selfish and influenced more and more by the world around you. Today, Pastor Gary defines this condition as a hardened heart. So be careful what you ask for, because when your heart hardens, you just might get it. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Joshua chapter 11 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. This is the beauty of the story where you can be outnumbered and you can be outmaneuvered. But if you have God on your side, it's going to go well for you. And that's what happens here with the Israelites. They don't need horses and chariots. They have God. In fact, it reminds me of what David wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's Psalm 27. Uh, That's a verse that probably some of us need to write down because there might be some things that you're going through that you feel the odds are stacked against you. You know, there are things happening in our own culture where we can start to get depressed, things in our own county where we think, wow, things are stacked against us or things are not going in our favor. But listen, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so we just need to always trust him and lean into him. And we can't always make sense of stuff in our world or in our personal lives. But some trust and cherish, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so these Armies have gathered, these kings have gathered, they outnumber the Israelites, they've outmaneuvered the Israelites, but it says in verse 6, but the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. And he says, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. 
Great movie, too, by the way. Chariots of Fire. Some of you are too young to even know what I'm talking about. Google it. It's a good movie. But notice that God says, I want you to hamstring the horses and I want you to burn the chariots. In other words, I don't want you to capture their weapons. I want you to destroy their weapons. Because, you know, the Bible, Paul reminds us the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not natural. But they're spiritual for the pulling down of strongholds. That God fights for us, and we don't need to rely on human things like this. So he even says to Joshua, you know, don't, don't take their horses and think, well, now you have a, a cavalry. I want you to hamstring their horses. Don't take their chariots, because you're going to become dependent on those and think that the chariots are going to do your fighting for you. No, because the Lord is saying, I'm going to be fighting for you. So hamstring the horses, burn their chariots with fire. Verse 7, so Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merome. They attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Mizrahoth, and to the valley of Mizpah, eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them standing. And so Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. By the way, you're going to see different times where it just makes this statement about Joshua that he did as the Lord told him, or he did as Moses had told him because the Lord had told Moses. Joshua is a very obedient man. He's very faithful to God. He doesn't question. He doesn't say, well, why this, why that? He just does what God says. In verse 10, and so Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with a sword. For Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. And then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them. Here it is again, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor, only which Joshua burned. It's interesting. It speaks here specifically that any city that was built on a mound, now the Hebrew word is tal. There are different ancient tells throughout the land of Israel. And a tell is basically a mound where civilization upon civilization has built over the same area. And so even today, like when, when you go to various sites in Israel and we stand at Megiddo and we look over the, the valley, the Jezreel Valley where Armageddon will be waged, the Valley Megiddo, archaeologists have taken like a slice of Megiddo. Megiddo is a tell. And they've taken like a slice. It almost looks like a piece of a pie that was taken out of this ancient tell. And you can actually see when you look into the slice, you can actually see like 15 different layers of civilizations going all the way back to the Canaanite period. So it's interesting here, by the way, Tel Aviv means mound of the spring. So there are various tells in Israel that Joshua's like, we're going to preserve the historical record here. We're not going to demolish these ancient tells. If there was a city that was built upon a city, we're going to let it stand. Only Hazor did he burn. So I don't know if that's trying to preserve history as a record or, or why exactly, but he didn't burn any of the mounds. He didn't burn any of the tells except Hazor. 
Verse 14, and all the spoil of those cities and the livestock, the children of Israel took as, well, New King James says booty, don't don't let your mind, just, it's plunder, okay? That's what it is. It's just the word that's used here. For themselves, okay, all of the spoils of these cities they took for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. There's that statement again about it's just his obedience. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So again, you know, these are hard chapters. These are military campaigns. God has been patient with the Amorites. They have refused to bow to God. And so judgment is coming upon these nations, particularly as they wage an offensive war against the Israelites. Well, verse 16 says, And thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. And Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, pause there for a moment. This is sometimes some difficult theological stuff here where it talks about how God hardened their hearts. Verse 20, it was the Lord who, to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel. Now, whenever you read in the Bible, because this isn't the only place that the Lord hardened someone's hearts. Remember, with Pharaoh, before Pharaoh let the Israelites go, it said God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says that, I think, eight times. But it also says, I think, three times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What does it mean when the Bible says that the Lord hardened their hearts. It sounds very fatalistic. It sounds like, well, God is just forcing this by his own hand. When God hardens one's heart, it simply means this, that he's giving to them what their sinful heart desires. You see, God is patient with us, but to a point when we continue to refuse to yield to God, to surrender to God, then he will, in effect, give us what we want. And it's not because he wants to, it's because the inclination of our sinful heart refuses to submit, refuses to bend, refuses to surrender, refuses to repent. And so then God says basically, okay, you want to be like that? Fine. I'll let you be like that. And how miserable it is for us. This is Romans chapter one, where God even talks about how he turned people over to the lusts and the immorality of their own hearts. Because at some point when people say, this is what I want, this is what I want, and I refuse you, God, then God will harden their hearts. Say, this is what you want. Okay, I'm going to give you what you want. And the people here who were coming against God and coming against Israel, time and time again, God tried to reach them. But it came to a point where they didn't want peace with God. They didn't want a peace with the Israelites. So God's saying, okay, then I'm going to give you what your sinful hearts want. It's not going to go well for you. This is true for all of us. It never goes well for us when we get what our evil hearts want. What goes well for us is when we ask God to forgive us of our evil hearts and surrender to him. That's what goes well for us. 
But in our stubbornness and in our reluctance, God will sometimes then give us what we're wanting by hardening our own hearts. And thus, destruction came to them. Verse 21, and at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim. Now, circle that in your Bibles. This is not Anakin, all right? This is not Anakin Skywalker. This is Anakim. We'll talk about them in a moment. Very interesting, kind of strange people. But notice, at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. But notice, they remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Now, there's, in other words, what we're reading there is that he destroys the Anakim that are in the land of Israel, but he pushes them to the perimeters to these areas, Gaza, which is down by the Mediterranean area. It's the same region today that's called Gaza, which it's Palestinian territory. He pushes them off also to Gath and to Ashdod. These are different cities on the perimeter of Israel. And they will remain there because we're not done with the Anakim. Now, I'll talk a little bit about who the Anakim are, were, because they're kind of an interesting group, but let me just hasten to add this. We haven't seen the last of them. Because about 500 years after this story, a young king-to-be by the name of David is going to fight one of the Anakim, whose name was Goliath. Goliath was a descendant of the Anakims. And he doesn't show up until about 500 years later here in 1 Samuel 17 when David fights him. So this is not the end of the Anakim. Some of your translations say Anakites, same people that we're talking about. Who were the Anakim? Well, they were, they were giants. Uh, they were, uh, let me finish reading this chapter and then we'll talk about them. Verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. So that's a good thing to read. Hold your place there in Joshua and go back to the book of Genesis chapter 6 because I want to just talk real briefly about the Anakim. Who were the Anakim or who were the Anakites? In Genesis chapter 6 is the first time we're introduced to them. They were a giant race of people. The word giant in Hebrew is Nephilim. Nephilim also translates fallen ones. Now keep that in mind because that has to do with who they are. So there were a giant race of people And the Anakim are part of this giant race of people. That's why when I referred to Goliath a moment ago, the Bible says that Goliath stood six cubits and a span. As the Bible says, well, a cubit is 18 inches. Six cubits and a span is nine feet, six inches. That's how tall he stood. He wasn't just an anomaly, like one freak guy that needed to be signed up to the NBA. No, that guy was part of a larger group of people who were known as Nephilim, or giants, or fallen ones. Where did they come from? First time we read about them here in Genesis 6, verse 1. 
Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, could underline that, saw that the daughters of men, could underline that, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And it's actually the language here in the Hebrew is a very violent thing. They took women, they seized women, they possessed women. Okay, we'll talk about it, but keep reading. Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants, some of your translations say Nephilim, it's the Hebrew word for giants or fallen ones, on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Okay, so this introduces us here to the Nephilim. And it speaks here about a giant race that came to be as a result of the sons of God intermarrying or taking, seizing, sexually taking the daughters of men. Now, sons of God, when it mentions sons of God here, it is a phrase in Hebrew, B'nai Ha'elohim. B'nai Ha'elohim is only used three other times in all of the Bible, all three times in the book of Job, and every single time that phrase is used, it refers to angels. So when it speaks here of the sons of God, it's not talking about human beings, it's talking about fallen angels. That's why the word Nephilim means not just only giants, but fallen ones. These are demons that rebelled when Satan rebelled in heaven, kicked out of heaven, expelled these fallen angels then, took on some kind of physical form, seized women, basically raped them, had uh, sexual relations with them, and the race produced by these demonic creatures that took on human form, having sexual relations with women on earth, produced this giant race. You read about them before the flood, which is Genesis 6. You read about them after the flood. You read about them in Deuteronomy 2 and Deuteronomy chapter 3. And again, as I mentioned, you also uh, read about uh, Goliath still uh, in the book of Samuel. So um, they're not destroyed by the flood, although that is one reason why God was so grieved as to what was going on on the earth that he brought the flood, because that's what's reflected here in chapter 6. God is like so grieved That's why he says in verse 3, but we just read, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for indeed he is flesh. And so, you know, God sees what is happening here. And and part of what is happening here is these demonic creatures take on human flesh, have sexual relations with women on earth, produce this giant race. And in your Bibles, whenever you read about Nephilim, the Rephaites, the Zuzites, the Amites, the Horites, or the Anakites, or Anakim, that's the plural of it, those are all references to various giant races of people that existed on the earth. And so when we come back here now to the book of Joshua, what Joshua is telling us here, what chapter 11 is telling us here, is that Joshua dealt with them. Now, this is particularly interesting because 40 years earlier, in Numbers chapter 13, When Moses was on the border of the promised land 
And remember, he sent in 12 spies on a recon mission. Go spy out the promised land. Come back and report what you have found. And 10 of the 12 spies came back and said, this is out of Numbers chapter 13, we can't go in and take this promised land. What did they say? There are what in the land? Giants in the land. And they were terrified. And the Bible says a report of fear spread throughout the camp of Israel. And this is why they never went into the promised land, not that generation. They all ended up dying in the wilderness because they were faithless. The only two out of those 12 original spies who went in to spy out the land who came back and said, no, we can take them. Yeah, I know there's giants in the land. We saw them too, but we can take them because the Lord is on our side and he's going to fight for us was Caleb and Joshua. 40 years later, Joshua is going to be God's military man to take the very giants that those 12 spies said we cannot take. He and Caleb would be the only two from that generation to come into the promised land, and God will use him and by his hand to defeat the very giants that originally had so discouraged the Israelites. Joshua's like, I'm taking them. This is the time to do battle with them. Now, I think what's interesting to note, and I just want to conclude with a quote from uh, Alan Redpath, because one of the things that is difficult when we read about bloodshed and, and we read about war and all of this is there's something to be said, however, about how God brought about victory by his mighty hand, because it translates into sometimes our own personal struggles to be reminded that in the battles that we face, that God is going to fight for us as well. And so I came across this quote by Dr. Alan Redpath. He used to be the pastor of Moody Church a while ago. But he said, sometimes in the course of human experience, it is good to sit down and reflect on what has been conquered by the grace of God. When you read your Bibles and you read all of this that's happening in the conquering of the land and warfare, that God brought about the victory. And sometimes it's good for us to sit down and think about the victories that God has scored in our lives too. It's good sometimes to just kind of take inventory and say, you know, Lord, you brought about a great victory when you did this for me and when you did that for me. And to thank him for the way that he intervenes on our behalf, the way he fights for us, the way he defends us, the way that he will see us through. Because one of the other takeaways that I I want us to remember when we read the book of Joshua is this, that God has given us an inheritance, but there are still battles to be fought. You know, God had said to the Israelites, this land I've promised on oath to you. I swore it to your forefathers. It is yours. But yet they still had to fight battles. And For us as well, you know, we have an inheritance in Christ. One day we're going to go to heaven. But in the meantime, there are still battles to be fought. As Christians living out our lives on planet Earth, there's battles of our own flesh that we have to fight, right? Right? Am I the only one? There are battles of our own flesh. There are battles that you will fight for the soul of your children. There are battles that you sometimes have to fight for the preservation of your marriage. 
There are battles sometimes that we have to fight culturally. There are demonic battles that are constantly, you know, fighting against us in different ways in the unseen realm. There are constant battles. So let's just be encouraged by Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? Amen. That's all we have for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to this message in the book of Joshua again, or if you'd like to explore other messages from Pastor Gary, just visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Under the teachings option, you can download our mobile app to stay connected with God's Word everywhere you go. While you're there, you'll notice our companion resources. These digital study guides give you some additional insight into some of the studies Pastor Gary has done. They are completely free for you to use. If this ministry continues to be a blessing to you and you want to listen to more teachings, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify so you never miss another message. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry out of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area, we'd love to meet you in person, so come visit us. You'll find service times and more information about Cornerstone Chapel at cornerstoneconnection.cc. With that, our time with you has come to an end for today, so put a marker in your Bible right there in Joshua, and we'll plan to study the Word again next time. Thanks so much for listening to Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know, still you know you're not alone. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.